Hello, and welcome to a very special Body Electric podcast. Drum Edition with Morgan Childs. Today is July 30th, 2015, and for episode 7 of the podcast, I thought it would be fun to sit down and chat with one of my favorite drummers in the world, the great Morgan Childs. Uh, He's originally from BC, and since moving to town, he's become a top-call drummer, and rightfully so. He is all time, tone, and ears, and extremely exciting to watch on the bandstand. Um, His new album, On the Street of Dreams, has just been released, and he's doing a tour of British Columbia in August, with yours truly playing guitar in the band. Um, And today we also have a really great bassist, Dan Fortan, joining us uh, to make the group a trio. Thanks to everyone that came out to the Rex for my shows this month. It's been a blast. Uh, we recorded a new album this week. It's sounding really strong. Uh, and so thanks to the guys, Morgan and Pat Collins, uh, for playing on that. Uh, it's been really wonderful working with you on it. Um, I hope you enjoy the podcast. If you'd like to say hi, you can visit my website at NathanHiltz.com or hit me up on Twitter. That's at NateHiltz, N-A-T-E-H-I-L-T-Z. Thanks for listening. Good to see you. Good to see you. Welcome too. to my apartment. This is fantastic. Man. I hope it's Thanks not for too sweaty me. for you today. I think we'll be all right until we start playing. Cool. Well, it's nice to uh, have a drummer for the first time on this podcast. It's just been guitars, and uh, you're the guy to get. Thank I you very say. much. I uh, I devoured when you told me that this was happening and that I was going to be a part of it. I devoured your other episodes. They're fantastic. Sweet, man. Sweet. Well, um, I actually wanted to start with maybe like a, a very specific question, but I do want to talk about things in general a little later, but um, one of my favorite things to do as a guitar player, when I'm playing with you, I like to turn off my volume control and uh, play along with your cymbal. Hmm. And, you know, I, I just like, because um, like the Freddie Green style copies the, the feeling of the ride cymbal, so... I feel like over the last few years that we've been playing together, like I've learned a lot about what it means to swing from just playing with your ride cymbal. So, uh, yeah, the first question I wanted to ask is like, what does the ride cymbal mean to you, and sort of what is its importance for you? you know? I mean, I guess the ride cymbal is the center of the of the time feel for the drums. Like it's the dominant voice, I guess you could say. So everything else around the rest of the drum kit is balanced to the ride cymbal's level, right? Mm. I want the ride cymbal to be the most prominent voice so that everything sort of follows from the phrasing of the ride cymbal and from its level in the band and how it, how the attack of the ride cymbal hooks up with the rest of the musicians and also how the decay, the actual wash, the sound of the cymbal um, adds that cushion that uh, frequencies fills in the frequencies mm. of the, that the other instruments don't have, right? Because mm. all instruments have attack, and then not all instruments have decay and wash. Guitar does, piano does, you know, trumpet doesn't really, right? You kind of have attack, and you can control the volume, and you can hold the note, but it doesn't have like decay in the same way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. And so, um, how did you develop your ride cymbal technique? Like, uh, when did you start actually going dan 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 dan? You know. Yeah, I guess um, the first, my first teacher that I had, Blaine Wickjord, the great drummer on the West Coast, 
I mean, he was a, a very influential teacher for um, using various techniques at different tempos to get a certain sound out of the cymbal, um, really focusing on my technique in terms of learning about the fulcrum where the stick is held in the hand and how to control that mm -hmm. and control it at all tempos. So he was sort of my first teacher for learning, you know, the basics of how to play the ride cymbal beat, how to um, feather the bass drum and keep the hi-hat going on two and four, all the basic sort of coordination things that make up, you know, 90% of jazz drumming kind of starts there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then um, I had some other influential teachers for the ride cymbal. Clarence Penn was one when I was at the Banff Center in 2003. Clarence was really, he encouraged me to think less about technique and more about sound. And from that moment on, I became much more interested in just listening to records really carefully and trying to imitate the sound that I heard. And if I had to modify my technique a little bit more from what I'd earlier been taught about how to play certain tempos, etc., I became much more willing to do that because I heard the, it, it paid immediate dividends to do that mm. because you heard the sound right away change and become more like what I was hearing in my head. Mm. Mm. So as a drummer, um, what, what kind of sound are you striving for and, and where does that, you know, your conception of what you want to sound like come from? Mm. I guess that's an interesting question. It's, I've thought a lot about what I want to sound like. Um, is it too simple to just say I want to sound like Jimmy Cobb? No, no, that's completely show? fine. I mean, like if I could pick one guy and one record, it's actually that that record was a really influential one for for that phase of my development where I was refining my ride cymbal beat. I mean, I'm still refining it constantly, trying mm -hmm. to figure out ways to make it better, stronger, more clear. But um, basically, what I want to express with the drums is the idea of polyrhythmic swing vocabulary as a basis for, you know, personal expression in music. So, I spend a lot of time thinking about um, the interlocking rhythms, how to balance all the voices of the drum kit so that it sounds like one instrument. And the flow seems natural at all times, it never seems like I'm playing anything that's that's contrived. I want the music to breathe and to to basically um, have my role be one of supporting other people, you know, so they can they can f feel like they're being fed with good information that inspires them to play. You know? mm, mm. So, what are what are your favorite kind of players to play with? You can name names if you like, but w which players really kind of get you off and and inspire you on the drums? I feel like people with, uh, you know, people who play inventive rhythm and who can really sock into a pocket really deeply, that always puts a big smile on my face, you know. Mm -hmm. When you get that feeling of like, well, like you say, you know, when I play with you, for example, I always feel like you're listening to the ride cymbal and, and trying to hook up with what my eighth note feel is. Mm -hmm. And I'm also doing that you know, I'm responding to your feel at the same time. Mm -hmm. So that that's a nice place to start. You know what I mean? So I, I've been lucky to play with lots of people that have really 
fantastic eighth mill fields. You know, Robbie Botos is one that comes to mind. Phil Dwyer, who I played with last night, you were there. Um, you know, no one digs into the time more than Phil. Mm. Plays super inventive rhythm. You know? mm. mm -hmm. It seemed like he had a something about Phil. He seemed to play some odd groupings to me. I kept on hearing fives and sevens and things like that. Like it seemed to be a big part of what he was doing. Mm -hmm. But also the feeling of being like a really pure improviser. He's not so much playing licks, but he's really just sort of in the moment, you know? Yeah, no bag of tricks. Yeah, it's, for sure. It's just about the flow. So we've got um, actually another special guest here, a smiling one. Uh, Dan Fortan is a great bassist, and uh, when we were going to have drums, we figured we needed bass too so that we could play some tunes properly. Um, so Dan's a busy sideman, and uh, he's also, I'm going to use a word that Morgan doesn't like, he's the curator of the jazz <laughs> music, the jazz music at the Emmett Ray. Is that what you would call it? Uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, I book, I book the... You're a booker. Yeah, I'm a booker, yeah. I, I, I booked the Mondays there for the a few Emmett years. Emmett Ray was a museum. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and I, I, we just started doing Sundays, actually, uh, oh, in cool. June, so we've done about six weeks of Sundays, too. Nice. Yeah. Nice. And you, you've got your own kind of Dan Fortan project, or is it a collaborative? Yeah, collab I mean, well, I play a lot with Myriad 3, which is a trio with Chris Donnelly and Ernesto Savini, and I, I just put out my first record of my own uh, called Brinks on uh, Fresh Sound New Talent, a record label from... What? Yeah, really? From, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Cool. I had yeah. no idea you put a record out on that Yeah, it, it just sort of came out in June. I'm doing some seed release stuff in, in, uh, in September and, and some other stuff later. It's with... Uh, uh, all, all Toronto guys, uh, David French, Michael Davidson, and Fabio Ragnelli. Beautiful hey. band. That's amazing. Cheers. Great. Um, okay, so why don't we play some? Let's play Let's some. Play some. Yeah.
felt good. I always think of uh, the Sunny Greenwich version of that with Don Thompson. There's this album where uh, Sunny Greenwich did it with Kenny Wheeler. It was okay. supposed to be an album with Kenny, like a live album, but uh, I guess Kenny and him didn't get along or something like that. Oh, so there's an album out there that has both their names on it, but they don't actually play together. Huh? It's oh. like the band. It's like a live thing, and the band will have either Sunny or Kenny kind of thing. But anyway, there's a great Sunny version of uh, I Love You, which is just beautiful. I've never heard that. Yeah, it's cool. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, okay, so Morgan, I wanted to wanted to ask you about um, sort of uh, like you how what you believe jazz is. Um, mm. you, you're you're someone that I find you know something I like about you is that you, you're a man of conviction, you know, and I feel like you've actually influenced my jazz worldview just playing with you, and you you seem to be very dedicated to to a certain thing. Like just swinging is kind of the easy way to say it. But um, maybe you can talk a little bit about how you feel like jazz music, what, what jazz music is supposed to be. I feel like any, anything else that has its own culture, like, you know, jazz is like a subculture of music, right? And it involves people that share a common vocabulary, right? And a common history and a common knowledge, I guess, about mm -hmm. what constitutes the the things of central importance to us, right? And I think that, for me anyway, the, the, the unifying threads from all the music that I like have something to do with swing. I mean, not, this is not all the music that I like, full stop, but I'm talking about, you know, the, what I consider, you know, jazz music to be. It has to involve some sort of expression of swing rhythm. Um, and that that's a pretty wide-ranging thing. That's it's not as narrow as it sounds to just say that, you know. And mm. <clears throat> what it really is to me is like the expression of yeah, polyrhythmic unity, you know, invention, melodic invention, rhythmic invention. Um, and then I I, I think it it's has to, it's an expression of the musicians that play it. Mm -hmm. So it's really dependent, wherever you are in the world, it's really dependent on, like, the definition of what jazz is, is really dependent on who's around and what, how they're playing, mm -hmm. right? So it's different if you're in, I think it's a little different if you're in Amsterdam or if you're in Tokyo as compared to New York or Vancouver or San Francisco. It's all, it's going to, it's going to be a little bit different mm -hmm. because people are going to speak the language with a different accent wherever they are. Mm. Right. What, so what do you what are your favorite things about the Toronto scene? And you you've traveled a fair bit, and kind of I feel like you've experienced other scenes mm -hmm. in a kind of a deep way. So what what do you like about Toronto? There's a lot of musicians who play on a really really high level here. It's mm -hmm. there's kind of no shortage of great musicians on every instrument. You know? mm -hmm. you'd, you'd have to go pretty far down your list on any instrument before you were feeling like. Oh no, we gotta call that guy. <laughs> you know, like it never really gets to Dan Fortan. It never really, it never really gets to that. You know, and, and and what's nice about a big city like Toronto is like you can think more specifically about it's it's not just who's the best player to call. It's more like what voice do I want in this group? How are these people going to interact? Um, and and I something that I've always done in my life is try to put people together who 
make sense playing together and try to just see what is going to happen musically, right? Which is, you know, we have these gigs coming up in BC together, and I just decided that you and, and Dave French and John Meyer would be a really good combination, that we would have we would have that combination of common ground as musicians and shared sort of values musically and then enough differences that it would make it interesting, mm -hmm. you know? Because mm -hmm. the pot always gets stirred and, and someone always comes up with, with something new to do. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. and, and what, so, actually what you like about, you like about the scene now, what, what do you think is missing in our scene? What could we add to our scene to make it a better place for us to be in? Yeah, uh, that's a that's a tricky question. I, I I don't really know. I mean, you know, there's. I really like what we have going as a community at the Emmett Ray, and I guess it's just like fresh in my mind from playing there last night. But seeing the potential of, you you know, like musically, we didn't really we didn't really do anything spectacular or different or groundbreaking last night. We just got together and played tunes, played music that we like. And people came and listened, and hopefully went away, having enjoyed it and being inspired by it. You know, and that's that's the type of community hang. And and and, and we have it a little bit at the Rex. You know, I mean, a lot at the Rex. The Rex is, mm -hmm. is a, the spiritual home of our music here in the city. You know, totally. Um, but at the Rex, there's also so much music that it, it's it, it doesn't necessarily have the same community vibe. Um, what am I trying to say here? Well, that Monday night is a, is a kind of a special night, and now Sundays as well. Like I, I kind of like that. That you know, you you can always know that you're going to get a hang if you go down to the Emma Ray on a Monday night. Like, and you're going to get something good. and You're going to see some guys you know in terms as a player. You know. Yeah, I, I guess what, what I'm what I'm getting at with with mentioning the Emma Ray is the thing that I like most about the Emma Ray is that it's an it's an intergenerational hang, mm. which is something that I don't think gets done enough in this city. I think. You know, it's a it's kind of a pity that I don't get to hear Bob McLaren as often as I could, or Barry Elms, or Mark Eisenman, or you know some of the like guys that are now the elder statesmen of the scene. You know, they're not necessarily out there all the time anymore. But but at the Emirate, you know, they are sometimes. You know, mm -hmm. you get the nights where Mike Murley will be playing there, or mm -hmm. you know Steve Wallace will be playing there, or whatever. Like everybody wants to play there. You know, and, and I think, just speaking for myself, in terms of how I learned the music, how I learned the culture of jazz music was to put myself around older musicians who had been around and done more stuff and, you know, were willing to pass it on. Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that's, that's here, we've got, we've got it, it just needs a little tweaking here and there, you know, right. there's certain there's little cultural things, I think, mm. some of the younger players, you know, coming up, there's some real great shiny examples of, of guys that are really committed to, I think, having the right attitude and, you know, and then there's some other things that I would, I would say it wouldn't be, wouldn't be uh, out of line for the older players on the scene or even like the more mature players, like we're getting of that generation where we, we should be offering more corrections and more suggestions for, you know, for the younger players, how to play and, and you know sometimes how to behave too, mm. jam yeah. sessions and mm. things like that. That's a really good point because like I feel like 
you know, it sometimes turns into a bit of a mutual appreciation society out there, and everyone's like, in, in the kind of name of being supportive, you kind of say like, oh, sounds great, man, sounds great, but you would never actually say, call someone out and say like, oh, um, well, maybe you should do this, and like with love. I feel like it can be yeah. done with love, but I mean, yeah. you know. I've always been grateful for those times when people have said, hey, man, you know, you should really consider this or whatever, or just... Oftentimes it was often done with it just like a suggestion for what to listen to, mm -hmm. you know. It, just, it doesn't have to be a thing like, like, hey man, you suck. Like I don't want that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's that's not what I'm talking about, you know. And I, you know, I don't want like, yeah man, I heard what you were trying to do. Like, <laughs> <laughs> keep, keep doing what you do. <laughs> like, you know, I don't really have any time for that either. It's, it's more just like you say, like supportive mm -hmm. suggestions. Mm -hmm. And you, you, so you like teaching? It's something you enjoy to do? Yeah, I mean, I feel like a, it's almost like an obligation to teach in some ways. You know? mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so you got a new record coming out, right? I do, indeed. So what's this? What is this music on this new record that I haven't heard yet? Um, it's a. It has. There's some original tunes of mine and some of uh, my arrangements, I guess you could say. Of of uh, there's a few standards. There's a couple of beautiful ballads. I put the I put the record together around a tour that I did a couple years ago with, with Kelly Jefferson and Dave Restivo and John Maharaj, um, and I thought really hard about how to present the music, how to how to make sets that really flowed like almost as a show, you know, not not like a show business show, but just trying to really put really concise, good sets of music together. And then once I got the, I recorded one night at the cellar. Rest in peace, the cellar of the Great Bar in Vancouver, and one night at the uh, Yardbird Suite, and I just put the record together to sort of be like a listening experience, like you would have if you were to go to the club and catch a set, like a really good set. Mm -hmm. That was kind of my concept for it. So it's called On the Street of Dreams, and it comes out as soon as humanly possible. <laughs> right, right. So there'll be some kind of release party in Toronto. Obviously. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. great. And uh, will you have it on the road in September, in August? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Cool. Um, well, you mentioned uh, ballad, ballads um, on your record. Do you, do you want to play a ballad right now? Sure. Yeah. All right. Love to. Let's do a ballad. Mm -hmm. What uh, What tune strikes your fancy? Jeez, oh, I don't know. What have we been playing lately at Joe Mama's for ballad? You had a good suggestion on Sunday. Um, what did I say last Sunday? I'll be around or, or um, um, or uh, did you know Never Let Me Go? Ne no, I don't. Shit. I don't know why that popped in my head, but it did. Me too. Um, there's, um, um, the, uh, Smoke Gets In Your Eyes. Do you know that one? Uh oh, I wish. Or, um, what about, been doing Somewhere Over the Rainbow a little bit lately. Oh. I don't know. Or, um, probably kind of know that. I yeah. Mean. Or, um, <laughs> Chelsea Bridge. Chelsea Bridge. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. That one for sure, yeah. Okay. Let's do that. Why don't you count us in, Morgan? Uh, why don't you just play the pickup? All right.
Beer sponsor. Um, All right. Something my uh, favorite kind of sponsor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, more official or beer. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Morgan and I um, have been known to occasionally imbibe. You know, occasionally sure. have a drink. You know, we have a good gig and we're feeling good after. And we're like, hey, why don't we have a beer? Or Not two. Me, though. Or there's two. A, there's a little photographic evidence to that. Yeah, a few. And uh, and you, you you like nice things. That's kind of the, my favorite things about you. You like like. Good food, you like good drinks, you like great music, good sports, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and one of my favorite things that you order is this thing called the East Van West Vangria. Well, East Vangria. East Vangria? Yeah. What would East a West Vangria, Vangria be? What is that? <laughs> East Vangria is something I learned from my friend Andreas Seppel, who's a uh, restaurateur in, in Vancouver. And he was a he's a fixture of the commercial drive neighborhood. He lives mm -hmm. in that neighborhood and he would, he would always be hanging out on our gigs at the Libra Room. and. And uh, Falconetti's and, and whatnot, and he's quite a character. And so East Vangria is like what you make with the wine that people leave at your house after a party. Awesome! Like you know, you know how like you bring a bottle of wine to a party, but you'll never bring like a nice bottle. You bring like, yeah. some eight dollar bottle of Plunk. Yeah. And you never want to drink that by itself. So East Vangria is just like whatever leftover wine you have, <laughs> poured over ice with club soda and lime, and like you can put a shot of brandy in there, or whatever, sure. you know, or vodka or whatever you have. But yeah, it's basically just the high test on a hot day. <laughs> cool. What are we drinking tonight? Well, tonight we've got uh, beer from Bellwoods Brewery, and they, they do not know Fantastic. we're doing this, and I'm sure if they knew we were doing this, they'd say, please don't, because you guys are... <laughs> we don't want to be associated, associated with you guys. guys. I don't know. Yeah. I've spent a lot <laughs> Oh, man. Well, they, they are cheap, but... Uh, and Morgan, would you... Uh, uh, we you have two kinds here, here Mon monogamy and wizard wolf. Oh man, you know so what? I, I, you I've try? had the Wizard Wolf before and have not had the Monogamy, so I would I would pick that one actually. Yeah, the of course the you Monogamy would. changes like depends on whatever like right. It's, it's a single hop, hop variety, which is it's an interesting concept because they're they're not, always uh, really delicious. Cool. Well, I was thinking, you know, maybe we'd have a drink and see if uh, what your first impressions are of oh, this sure. beer. How do you feel about that? I mean, you know, I'm not I'm not an expert. <laughs> Wow. That's hoppy. That's oh, good. that's lovely. Very tasty. It's got a great aroma too. Been dry hops, so you get that 
It's my first time acting in a while. Fucking hilarious. Okay, so we gotta we uh, we forgot to do the advertising, so we have to do the advertising the for our completely unsolicited, unofficial, and unsanctioned sponsor, uh, Bellwoods Brewery. Um, all right, so let's do this. All right, all right. Oh gee, gosh. What's wrong, Nate? I just played a gig at the Transac, and I only made twenty bucks. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, I guess folks just don't like 12-tone melodies played in 7-8 time with a backbeat through Moog synthesizers with delay pedals anymore. Not like back in the day. <laughs> I know. And, uh, you know, I need to relax with a beer, but the liquor store is closed. It's 10.30 p.m., and, and uh, my 20 bucks will barely get me two beers in a bar, so I guess I'm just going to have to go home and think my thoughts. Well, why not go to Bellwoods Brewery on Ossington? Bellwoods Brewery? What's that? Oh, Bellwoods Brewery is a micro-brew pub. And they're open 11 a.m. to midnight every single day to sell you off sales. So you mean I can get a six-pack on the cheap if I head over there now? That's right, Nathan. And you may even have enough left over to get a tequila shot at Reposado, the jazz club next door. Wow, thank goodness for Bellwoods Brewery. Bellwoods Brewery on Ossington Avenue in Toronto. Try the refreshing farmhouse classic, the deliciously hoppy cat lady, or our favorite, the barrel-aged Farmageddon. Thanks, Bellwoods Brewery, for making this jazz guitarist a little bit happier between the hours of 9 p.m. and 11 p.m. Bellwoods Brewery, where musicians of refined taste go to forget their life. <laughs> Bellwoods is fine! Bellwoods is fine! They get you real junk right after nine! <laughs> Woo! <laughs> so, uh, we went and saw this, um, uh, this movie about, who was it? Art Farmer. Clark Terry. Right. Clark Terry, right. Clark Terry. Pardon me. And, uh, it was super moving, you know, and we were talking yeah. about how it was so moving on a lot of different levels, you know, uh -huh. not just the jazz musician thing. And, uh, you know, I, I think about the hang and, uh, and that the hang's importance to jazz musicians, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was wondering if you could reflect upon uh, that sort of thing, like, you know, the kind of camaraderie that we have to have, our community. You know? Yeah, I mean, the hang is, the hang is everything, you know. That's, that's where ideas get hatched and where wheels get greased and and uh, people make new friends and good friends become better friends you know and, it's, and uh, I think it's important to foster that mm. you know I think that's something that we do pretty pretty well down at Joe Mama's like our gig it's very open I'm actually like a little surprised that more people don't take advantage of it a little bit more especially like there's a few younger players that come out to, to sit in on a consistent basis but it's like, man, you have an open stage with the guys who... You know, it's not an open stage, I don't want to say that. Like, no. It's an invitation-only thing. But we'll get you up if you can we'll play. You, you want to play. play you know? yeah. yeah. And that's the way, that's how you make yourself better, you know? Put yourself in those challenging situations and then make the hang, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you came up in... Uh, in don't Bang do the hydrate and migrate, as uh, Alex Coleman said. The hydrate other and migrate. Yeah. What's that? You drink <laughs> it's like when you show up and you, you drink a glass of water and you sit in one tune and then you spray. Oh, that's the worst. That's the absolute worst. <laughs> the hydrate and migrate. Yeah, you gotta hang out and say hi, at least. You know, yeah. you don't have to drink if you don't drink or whatever. But no, you of course hang, not. You know? No, but it's, yeah. it's, you know, contribute something. Right. And so where did Tell this happen? Joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where, where did this happen? This happened for you in Vancouver, right? Like you came up in Vancouver. So what were your, your early experiences of the hang? Ah, like? uh, yeah, well, I mean, I was so hungry to hear live jazz when I moved to Vancouver when I was 17. You know, we, I grew up in Invermere, BC, lovely little town in the Rockies. Um, lots of 
really good musicians there, good at their own thing, and but not a lot of jazz. Um, and we had to, you know, we had to travel to see jazz. We were lucky if someone good was coming to Calgary. Like I got to see Roy Haynes in Calgary the day after I graduated from high school. Um, mm. That's a special memory for me. You know, I drove all the way to Vancouver with Sean Cronin to go see Ray Brown and Rossini's. You know, with Jeff Keezer and Kareem Riggins, and you know, got to meet him. Like we were, we were, we were after it from a young age. You know, so when I got to Vancouver, it was like all of a sudden the floodgates opened. Like it was like I could go out every night of the week and see someone really, really good play, and someone, someone who I had admired on recordings. You know, I could go see Campbell Riga one night. I could see Ross Taggart the next night. I could see Brad Turner the next night, and I did. I went out all the time. Mm -hmm. But the main hang that was happening when I first got to Camp College was there was this bar that was owned by the Hell's Angels called the Mojo Room. <laughs> <laughs> it was the Mojo Room on Wednesday nights with the Brad Turner Quartet, and Brad did two versions of his quartet. He did, uh, sorry, no, it was trio or quartet. So the trio, it would be Brad on Fender Rhodes, uh, Darren Radke on bass and Bernie Arai on drums, which became his regular sort of piano trio. Yeah, he made I like a that. Few, I like that. Band, made yeah. a few great records on piano with those guys. Now um, is the question. Is that one? Yeah, yeah, I like that one. Is that what it's called now? Is, is that what it's called? It's got Starcrossed Lovers on. It. Yeah, it's yeah, the yeah. First yeah. time I ever heard that song. Um, and then his quartet, of course, which was Brad playing trumpet with Bruno Hubert on Rhodes, Andre Lachance on bass, and Dylan Vanderscape on drums, and then occasionally, you know guest people. If Michael Blake was in town, he would play. If Seamus Blake was in town, he would play. If, um, you know, if he, if Brad felt like doing some sort of, you know, tribute to the music of Freddie Hubbard or a tribute to the music of Herbie Hancock or whatever, you know, that he would add and subtract people as necessary. And, and he made that hang happen. And everyone would go, Wednesday nights, that was like the, that was where everyone from the college would go, you know, check out Brad, and, and I think that, that became a really influential and productive thing for me because some of the best advice I ever got as a musician ever was from Brad himself saying, you know, you should really get yourself a regular gig. Because when you have a regular gig, that's, it, it improves your chops. You know? Like he never actually told me any of that stuff, but I, now I know. From having regular gigs since that, from that point on, it became my mission to always have a steady, some mm -hmm. app, you know, with, with good players, with, with people who are better than you, basically. Mm -hmm. The, the dojo, I call it the dojo. Yeah, I mean, you get you get the guys that you want to get. You get the guys that are better than you and that will push you, and then you try to meet excellence with excellence, you know, mm -hmm. and that's that's what it's all about. So I learned a ton from from going to that regular session at the Mojo Room, and there was other places. There was this place called the Sugar Refinery. Gravel Street. It was like a vegetarian restaurant run by some young people who had they had all kinds of music there, you know, mm. from hip hop to jazz to free improv music. And Where was the Mojo Room? Pardon? Where was the Mojo Room? The Mojo Room was in North Burnaby. It was on Hastings at Boundary Road. Oh and, yeah. Okay. Um, it was like it was like a it was just a bar and it became a nightclub on weekends near and like El Barrio kind of. Uh, El Barrio is a little... It's further west, isn't it? Further west. El Barrio is closer to Commercial Drive. Oh, okay. Yeah, this is Hastings, like, past the bridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, gotcha. And the... the uh, 
someone tossed a fake grenade through the window one night at the motion. There was some weird oh, thing with man. the Hells Angels in that neighborhood. That's not cool. Yeah, was, that's the <laughs> freakiest thing. Ever. <laughs> so, so that 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 gig ended, and, and um, you know, shortly thereafter, Brad moved out of the city and you know started a family and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So, it was, but for the first you know three years of me living in Vancouver, I could see. Brad's band twice a week and whatever else I'm all the best players of the scene you know and killer and when did you know that you wanted to move to Toronto hmm. um I don't know I, I started coming here in like 2002 I guess after my first uh, experience at the Vamp Center mm -hmm. and it was uh, Gord Webster the great pianist uh, brought me to town and the first gig I ever played in Toronto With, uh, with 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 Gord and, and Rob McBride at Whistler's on the patio. Nice, right on. And we, Classic. We, um, uh, Norm Marshall Villeneuve showed up, and that was my introduction to Norm. And and you know, and then we played the Rex, and I I met Tom, and you know, all the, the people at the Rex, and like, I, I guess like. I don't know, I just, I like the vibe. I started coming here every year, basically, after that, you know. Mm -hmm. I would play with Brandy, I would, you know, hire Robbie, Botos, or, or you. I, I think I had you guys on the same gig one time, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, just, just trying to put myself out there and, 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 uh, not, not really any conscious effort to, like, build my career or anything, just, just to play with different people. Right. I love playing with different musicians and seeing what they have to say. Mm. I always have. So, yeah, I don't know. I, it, at a certain point in Vancouver, it just seemed like <clears throat> there, there was already a, a few other drummers who were really, really great and were playing in the sort of same mode as me. Like, people who were really influential on me. Jesse Cahill, particularly. Mm -hmm. uh, this great drummer who was in Bellingham, Julian McDonough. Kind of half part of the Seattle scene, half part of the Vancouver scene. He was always playing in Vancouver. And you know, Joe Poole moved back out a couple years after I arrived. And, you know, these guys, tremendous drummers. I, I was always feeling like I had to like carve out my own little place because I would never get, I would never get the work. Right. You know, there's it, there's slimmer pickings out there, mm. but they, you know, there's so many great musicians. So I just felt like I could come here and feel a little bit more useful five yeah. days of the week as opposed to two or three yeah you know, totally. try to make a little bit more money feel a little bit more security and you know that you shit's overrated though yeah totally <laughs> of course you know, that's not the shit you remember that Hugh Fraser once told me you know he was such a mentor to so many young musicians out west like pretty much everyone went to a jazz camp where he was teaching when they were in high school or something he's always been really supportive force for all the for all the musicians in, on the West Coast. And he once said to me, he's like, uh, it was right after I moved to Toronto, I did a tour with Rich Underhill that took me back to Vancouver. We were playing before uh, the Hard Rubber Orchestra, which is this great modern big band led by my friend uh, John Corsred, trumpet player, composer. And he, Hugh was being a special guest with the Hard Rubber Band that day. And I, I remember he, he saw me backstage and ran up and said, oh, Morgan, you know, so great to see you. And he, so what are you doing in Toronto? I said, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm just playing. I'm just trying to get the lay of the land. And just, are you like, do you have a teaching gig or anything? I said, no, nothing like that. I'm just, just trying to.
get gigs and work with people I like playing with. And he's like, oh man, I think that's great, you know, because you gotta you gotta trust in the music. You gotta have faith that the music will provide for you. You know, like, don't his his thing was always like never don't have a plan B. No such thing as plan B. Mm -hmm. If you have a plan B, that quickly becomes plan A. You know, plan A and B is to play music, and you trust and put your faith that the music will provide for you, and it does. Mm -hmm. You know. You know one of, one of my favorite analogies that you've I've heard you talking about a bit lately is uh, climbing the mountain. Mm. You know, and it it seems to speak to like what the path of a jazz musician should be or could be. You know, so. Tell me about that. Tell me about what the mountain is <laughs> for you. Well, it's funny because I mean, I, I guess having grown up in in the mountains, mountains are sort of a I don't know, they're like a symbol to me, like an important symbol. You know? mm -hmm. And when you feel like what it's like to climb one, like you can go climb a mountain and it, it can feel like an accomplishment, and then you realize like. You just climbed a really small mountain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, there's, the world is full of mountains, mm -hmm. right? And there's some gigantic ones out there. So the work is never just because you climbed one mountain doesn't make you any. You know, it's not. It's not really. Like you can feel good about it, but right. make no mistake. Like Mount Everest isn't going anywhere. You know? No. And like to me, like Mount Everest is like Philly Joe Jones or Max. Like those records are not going. Anywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, they're they're going to be here long after we're all dead, mm -hmm. know, and drummers are still going to be going. Fuck, did you do that? You're right. <laughs> so yeah. that's to me, that's the mountain. Is like, it's 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 the never-ending quest to to further your understanding and deepen your your methods and deepen your commitment to to playing music. Mm -hmm. You know, and the other thing about mountains is like they usually build temples on mountains, right? Like that's where the that's where the priests live, that's where the monks live, right? Mm -hmm. And that's where the wise people live. So you can climb the mountain and ask those people questions too. Mm -hmm. And that's, to me, conceptually, that's an important part. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've always been the guy that's like, oh, how do you do that? Can you tell me how to do that? Like, go find the players that you like, the players that you want to sound like, and then you ask them what they're doing. And they'll tell you. <laughs> Right, and they'll be excited to tell you. So you go to you know you go to the priest in the in the mountain like mm -hmm. uh, you know I, I had a great lesson a few years ago with Greg Hutchinson in New York and I felt like I had I'd worked for that one you know I trekked I trekked up to the top of the mountain to ask yeah. ask the priest you know to give me the knowledge and he gave it to me you know he gave me freely everything I wanted to know he just yeah, here's how you do this, here's how you do this, or whatever, like, mm -hmm. whatever it was, I mean, he was passing it on, you know, mm -hmm. and, and then you feel an obligation to go home and be a good monk and study and meditate and mm -hmm. get better, you know, out of respect for the fact that that guy gave you that knowledge. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there's, a, there's an obligation to improve. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, cool. And one last thing, I was wondering. This could be the longest podcast. How long? Ever. What are we at here? Let's see what we're at. It's like six hours <laughs> no, of Morgan no, no, no. talking about mountains just, and shit. Just, uh, just under an hour. Okay, we're good. All right, perfect. just one, one more quick question, sure. then we'll then we'll play another tune and okay. uh, and call it a night. Yeah. So I was just wondering, is there anything that you did when you were in your formative years or as a practicer over the years um, that maybe 
you think could be unique to you? Maybe something that you hit on that maybe other people maybe don't know about that maybe you'd like to share in that you know wonderful giving sort of way you've been talking about. I, I think if it's anything, if I could pinpoint like anything, um, it would be actually what I was just talking about, which is my willingness to to ask people what they're doing and how they're doing it. You know? So the and, curiosity, and really. The curiosity. Yeah. Curiosity is a, is a good... I mean, obviously, curiosity is what makes us pick up an instrument in the first place. You pick it up and you get a feeling from it and you become um, fascinated. Fascination turns into an obsession. Mm. <laughs> you know, I mean, we've all felt this, that feeling of obsession. Like, I need to know how this works. For me, it was always, I need to be a part of this community. I need to be able to hang these people, you know? Mm -hmm. um, the, the older musicians that I got to be around when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, you know? I felt like they were the funniest people in the world. They had the best stories, you know? They, they liked the best music, you know? They liked the best wine, whatever. Yeah. You know, they were hip. It's a way to and live, in a way. Like, they, they kind of uh, exemplify like sort of what a great life as an art jazz artist could be. Right? Yeah, maybe so. Um, or maybe not. Yeah, what makes you know? I don't. I don't know many other people who have, at the basically a drop of a hat, gotten into their car and driven two thousand kilometers to New Orleans just to hear what the trumpet players sound like. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I've done that, and I've sure. always done that. I've always just gone like, oh, I like that. Can I? I need to be around it. I need to figure it out. So that's, that's a, if anyone can learn something from that, then great. It's, it's maybe not, it's maybe not the most efficient approach to getting good at an instrument. Right. You know, there's, there's lots of other more efficient ways to get good at something, but I feel like my path has been pretty soulful, you know, and, and authentic, if I can use that word. Mm -hmm. I did get the knowledge from people I consider master musicians were very generous with me and, and I I do feel that obligation to pass that on. Great, great. Well, I think we should play one more tune and uh, call it a night. Um, do you have any, any gigs coming up that you'd like to tell people about? Um, yeah. You uh, too, Dip. Oh, shit. I guess I should have looked at my calendar before you asked that question. Well, I do. I can tell people about well, my gigs before every, these guys do. Every Sunday at Joe Mama's, well, yeah. a fabulous uh, organic band. And if you're a young player and you and you you know you're working hard and you're sounding good, you know, come down and talk to us. We'll let you sit in. You know, that would be nice, right? I guess like all I've got coming up is like going to the Pan Am Games events. Volleyball. <laughs> beach volleyball. Girls beach volleyball. volleyball. <laughs> <laughs> Um, is horse dressage well, an event? Well, dressage is an event, yeah. Is that, is that Pan Am? Well, there's no other way to do dressage. Oh, is dressage a horse specific? <laughs> a horse specific uh, it is not a real typically, yeah. <laughs> what are they going to have border collie dressage? I don't know. Oh, yeah. the camel. I don't know. Camel this is something I learned about recently, so. Yeah. Um, it's like dancing okay, so horses. It's like ballet on horses, basically, yeah. right? We got Wednesdays at the Rex. Right, that's with, for with your that's trio. for my trio, yeah, with Pat Collins Fantastic. on the bass. Yeah, um, we've been having a lot of fun doing that. Uh, we got a gig at Reposado this Saturday, the 18th. Uh, it's an Oregon trio gig with Bernie 
and uh, Ben Bishop, who was one of your guests. Yeah, second, second guest, I think, on the podcast. Fantastic yeah. addition to our scene. Yeah, Rep right Saddles on Ossington, just north of Queen. You guys should definitely go hear that. And then we're making a record. And then, you know what? My August is kind of quiet until we go to BC. Uh, I'm going to BC a little earlier for a little family time. And then you guys come out and we do some shows. Denman Island and Vancouver, the Tangent Cafe, Vancouver on the 20th of August, for anyone out west who's listening. And, uh, and then the Invermere Music Festival, the inaugural Invermere Music Festival in my hometown. Oh, cool. So, we take a little trip across the province. Good, nice time of year to drive across BC. So. Hell yeah. Great. What about you, Dan? What do you got coming up? Um, I guess kind of a handful of things. Um, uh, I have a tour with uh, band called Bernice and a great songwriter named Devin Sproul, who's from Virginia in August. Um, and Ronnie Scott's in London with, with Myriad 3 uh, on August uh, 10th or 11th. I should, uh, I should know that, but I don't. <laughs> uh, but uh, in, in Toronto, uh, I guess the main one would be, I'm, I'm doing a CD release at Burdock. Uh, which is a really fantastic new uh, venue and beer hall uh, at Bloor and Dufferin. Uh, basically, that's on September 9th. Great. So, I'm pretty excited about that one. Cool. Is that for the Fresh Yeah, this is my, my new record, Brinks. Yeah. Great, great. Yeah, I'm excited for that. Great. And so, your website, Morgan, is morganchildsmusic.com. And Dan? Yeah. Oh, danfortanthewebsite.com. Really? The yeah. website, yes. There's so many Dan Fortans in the world, or Daniel Fortans, like, man, you know, one of the only URLs I could find that wasn't taken was Dan Fortan, the website. I locked out in the name department that way. Not yeah, that's true. Child. Right, yeah. There's a line of beauty products based in Texas called Morgan Child. No kidding. Yeah. I've got about, like, you know, 15, 15% of the uh, phone book in Quebec is named Dan Fortan. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, Morgan, one one more question, one more. Um, so something that surprised me about doing this podcast, I've only done five or six episodes so far, only four of them have been released, but uh, rhythm comes up every time, and it seems like rhythm is like the primary focus of all kind of these players that I love in, in this city. Yeah. And so, well, especially with Ted Quinlan, you got into some really interesting conversations about rhythm. Totally. So. Um, how do we develop our rhythm, and um, and what does it mean to the music? I don't know. Is that a good question? <laughs> like, how do yeah, how do we develop question. it? Like, I mean, that's sure. a, I mean, it's a long process, obviously, but like, um, what's the best way to do that? I like to think about what the nature of jazz rhythm is in terms of, uh, you know, how to how to develop a good rhythmic feel, a good understanding of rhythm. rhythm. And <clears throat> I think the way people are taught how to swing, usually, I, I, I always say it's not incorrect, it's just incomplete. Because it usually involves some understanding of taking the middle triplet out of, you know, to make a swing eighth note in a certain tempo, you take a triplet, you take the middle triplet out, and you play triplet, 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 triplet. Not incorrect, just incomplete. There's a variety of, of uh, currents of rhythm that you can play when, you, when you're playing eighth notes, right? And basically what swing rhythm is, 
is you take the offbeat and you move it ever so slightly closer to the downbeat. So it could be something like a triplet, it could be something like a dotted quarter note with a sixteenth note, it could be a straight eighth note that's just maybe a little closer to the downbeat. It could be done with accents instead of with the placement of the beat too, right? Because if you play da va da va da va da va da, okay, that's fine. But you can play the same you can play the same articulation straight da va da va da va da va da. That's those are straight eighth notes, but they sound like they're swinging. And if you listen to, especially like I'm thinking of a lot of bebop players, <coughs> Bud Powell, Oscar Pettiford, Elmo Hope, Clifford Brown, Charlie Parker, even. You know, the, the, the eighth note is really a lot straighter than I think some people realize. And what that is, to me anyway, is the, it's the polyrhythmic current of the music being that tension between the triplet and the eighth note that is expressed in African music, you know, as the three over the two pulse, right? Mm -hmm. Right? And they don't have a sense of the, a lot of African music, I shouldn't say all because I don't know that for sure, but I do know in a lot of African music cultures they don't have a concept of the one the same way we do. They don't count to four or to six. There's just that constant flow happening, that tension happening. Mm. So for me, how I develop my rhythm, I listen to a lot of African music actually because it contains so much of the sort of DNA information of, of jazz rhythm. And if you listen to music from Ghana or Senegal, you know, West Africa, uh, any kind of African music, you will hear that pulse. You'll hear that thing expressed in the music, that interlocking, polyrhythmic, multi-rhythmic thing that's it's all built around the idea of people playing together and, and the rhythms, you know, interlocking and being like off kilter too, right? Because mm. they're not always, there's not, it's not an easy way to explain the relationships in a lot of those musics because it's not written down like Western classical music. You know? mm. I mean, I'm already a little bit confused in a way as a student because I mean you talk about the triplet like swing coming from the triplet and I'm like okay I can subdivide threes and I can find that mm -hmm. but then you talk about moving a little closer or taking a straight thing and putting it off a little bit ah. that's no longer it's not like you're saying okay divide it by eight and then grab five or something like that like you know yeah I mean well th I mean think about the offbeat eighth notes think about that area in the bar or in the beat being uh, a a range instead of a specific thing it's like a range and it can be close or it can be not close it can be further away you know like this mm. so when you listen to I mean I, I think immediately of Elvin Jones you listen to the way Elvin plays his ride single beat or the way he approaches a lot of his rhythmic flow you know it's not necessarily metric it's not metric all the time right mm. Billy Higgins was much the same too like Billy Higgins has a very distinctive way of phrasing his ride symbol that is like a lot of people describe it as being straighter straighter than Art Blakey or Philly Joe Jones maybe but it's not straight it's not perfectly straight it's in the cracks right, right. just like in notes between, yeah. just like notes can be in the cracks rhythms can be in the cracks too right yeah. mm -hmm. and I think that's something that's expressed in a lot of other it's not something we learn in like if you grew up listening to Western music, 
you know, it's maybe not as prevalent a, a concept. Right, like Anne Marie Records, for <laughs> like Anne Marie <laughs> Records, yeah, like like Van Morrison and Anne Marie Records, sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. Uh, does that does it's that speak to you, Dan? Like uh, from a rhythmic standpoint, as a yeah. bassist? I mean, I think so. Like, um, there's a lot that you can explain, you know, mathematically with rhythm. Um, I really love the idea that with jazz music, you get to a point where you're talking about. I mean, especially with like a ride cymbal beat. You're talking about something that's in between the ways we generally qualify a rhythm, right? So in between a triplet feel, in between a sixteenth note, and at that point, it's like it's not like oh, okay, well, we just have to divide it further. It's got it's going to be a hundred and twenty. Sorry, I don't know how to do math, uh, but you know, it, <laughs> you know, like you can't really qualify it further, and it just kind of becomes a feeling, right? So for me, like Billy Higgins is. Civil beat is like that feels like Billy Higgins. It's like it becomes a personality. So personal, thing, yeah. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? And yeah. that's the thing with all all of the great jazz drummers. I think is like their symbol beat. I mean, it's you know everything, but especially their symbol beat is like it's a personality. You know, mm -hmm. and you can explain it to a certain point, but like yeah, man, I, I, you know, after a certain point, it's like oh, that just feels that way. It's like a color. Mm -hmm. I love how it transcends know? like the words, like using words or using yeah. science well, to. I think, it's really I think there's a great, it's really important to try to explain that kind of thing, but ultimately I think it's important to recognize that like you can't really qualify it, it it's just, or especially quant quantify, quantify, you can't really quantify yeah. it, yeah, like it's just, you can only qualify it. Sure. It's just like that's, that's that, that vibe. You know. But it's interesting that the conversation comes around talking about like personal voices, mm. you know, listening to something and having it speak to you because the drums are like the original purpose of drums was for communication, right? When you go sure. to the or when you go to the origins of what a drum is, it was something like the drummers were always the communicators. Yeah. Right? Hmm. And that's that's in the DNA of the instrument, right? Yeah. I think it, it just goes hand like it, it. It does not surprise me that every drummer that I know has a personality that is like some some kind of communicator. Right? Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's so awesome, it's so like, common that how like you could take something as as like you know on paper as simple as like a ride cymbal beat. I mean, there's so much variation in it that like you know there's like an infinite amount of kind of color and vibe in there. Yeah. Know? Yeah, I mean, and, and I think, well, what I see anyway, a lot of younger players, they spend a lot of time learning how to play accurately, which is obviously very important to be able to play consistently, but then, like, <coughs> to, to work on, to work on vibe, like, to work on the, the yeah. intangibles, how do you work on that, mm. right? Like, for me, it was always just a process of listening and, like, trying to make it sound funkier and funkier. I'm still trying to just make it sound funkier and Playing funkier and funkier, you know? Mm. Like, I just want it to sound greasy and funky and dirty, you know? Mm. I, don't, I don't want it to sound, I don't necessarily need it to always sound clean and, and accurate, because it's not, that's not really the point to me. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's play. Let's use some playing. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Great. Yeah, let's play one more tune.
Love for sale, sure.
Yeah. Guys. All right. Thank you very much, Morgan. Thank you very much, Dan. Yeah, man. Yeah, you guys sound amazing. That was really fun. All right. Have a blast. All right.